All right, we continue today our study of math, the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in Matthew chapter 6. And just as we've been saying the last few weeks, the great thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount is found in chapter 5, verse 20. That our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to inherit the kingdom of God. And so what then follows are a number of comparisons. And we, we, we saw in Matthew 21 to 45, chapter Chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, that there's a contrast that the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is based upon a fuller, deeper, truer understanding of the intent of God's law and therefore results in a higher standard of obedience. Then last week, we saw him continuing this exposition of what it means and what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and we saw that last week he gives three examples of publicly acted out piety and he showed how true righteousness leads to a, a form of devotion that is based upon right and pure motives that seeks the accolades of God rather than the accolades of men. Now today, he continues his exposition of what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But he does so now by drawing our attention to some real and deep disp dispositional attitudes of the heart. Specifically, he's going to address the issues of loyalty and of trust. So, look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 6. Verses 19 through 34. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records these words of our Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the Lord of the law, showing us what true freedom under your law looks like. Grant, O oh God, that we would be spared from the tyranny of a cruel master and that we would indeed seek the righteousness of your kingdom above all. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. All right, so I've already explained that in this passage, Jesus is continuing the discussion of what it looks like to have a surpassing righteousness. And he, he frames it in terms of loyalty and trust. Loyalty and trust. Um, he talks in verse 20, uh, 24 that you cannot serve God and money. Okay, you cannot serve God and money. The word money there, if you use the King James Version, the, the word is translated mammon. 
And that word is actually a better word than money. Because when we think of money, we think of a, of a, of a dollar bill, a $20 bill, or a, maybe even a Benjamin, right? But the word mammon is more generalized. It means wealth, affluence. It's not just money. It's, it's, it's the stuff that you get with money. It's, it's, it's the comforts of life that, that are attained and maintained. It's the good life as defined by most societies in the world. You can't serve God and affluence. You can't serve God and wealth. Why does he drill down on wealth? And why does he speak of treasures on earth and treasures in heaven? Why, why does he speak of the accumulation of goods at all? Why is this even brought forward as an example? Well, because... He knows that in every culture, it doesn't matter what their culture's priorities are, what the, what the, what the economic uh, exchange item is, the concept of wealth exists in every culture precisely because there has been a warped creational mandate and sin has perverted the pursuit of a good thing and made it an ultimate thing or a false god that we are prone to worshiping. So I said a perverted creational mandate. What am I talking about? The creational mandates, if you think back to Genesis, the very beginning, are those things that God has decreed and set in motion and has woven them into the fiber of reality. And to kick against them is just absolute folly and it results in in madness and what has God said from the beginning he makes man and he tells man to be fruitful and multiply to have dominion over the earth to subdue it and to rule over it okay that comprehensive creational task, that assignment. You, you can't begin a project without the accumulation of the supplies you need. You can't extend dominion without addition. Okay? So built into the creational mandate that we have to be lords of this earth as, the, as God's vice regents, is the impulse and drive to accumulate. And that is good. The Lord speaks positively about what we can do when we have successfully worked hard with integrity and have acquired and accumulated and can dispense and enjoy and do all sorts of wonderful things. But that impulse to accumulate when twisted and deformed and corrupted by sin oftentimes becomes the the impulse to have power over 
to exploit, to dominate. And then when you add to it the fears that come from us being alienated from God. We no longer have right relationship with a creator in whom we can trust and on whom we can count. And so now we we have to think about how we can control our destinies and how we can maintain and create as much order in the chaos as possible. And so we need then, or so we think we need, more and more stuff to do it. And so easily then, What is a good thing rapidly in virtually every culture becomes a very viable false deity, a cruel one at that. Jesus warns us against the love of money, the love of affluence. Jesus wants us to be spared the, the many pangs that Paul speaks of when, when he speaks of some who they love money and so they've, they've gone after it and have pierced themselves with many pangs we learn in, in, in 1 Timothy 6.10. Jesus wants you to be spared from that. Why would you be pierced with many pangs? Well, because as, as you learn in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. You see, the reason you may scratch and scratch that itch, and it won't satisfy it, it'll just make it raw and bleeding and torn open is because you have placed ultimate hope in a preeminently finite thing. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beware What is it that you set your gaze upon and think of as the good life? That's this whole point of this middle section about the eye being the lamp of the body and what it it sheds light upon. And what are you setting your gaze upon? And here there's an allusion to to the lust of the eyes. It's otherwise known as human avarice. The, the, the compulsive and non-satisfied desire for more. And just as soon as you think you've got all that you want, you look over here and you see something else that you want, and you want it too, and you claw after it. Then you, maybe you get it, then you look over there and you see something and you want it too. It's just this non-stop cycle. The parable of the sower explains why Jesus wants you to be spared those pangs. The parable of the sower in Matthew 13, when Jesus is explaining the various soils, 
he says in Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Riches will tell you that if you have enough of it, if you give yourself wholly to it, it will take care of you and you can laugh at the years ahead that you will be able to overcome any obstacle or any challenge. The, the, the fears that plague other people will become minor inconveniences in your life. Your life will be better. And surely the great temptation is there because every single one of you, when I said that, says, well, it's better to have money than not. True. Unless you're having of it, is such that either you, you can't imagine, you can't imagine life without it, or two, it leads you into the non-stop scratching that indicates it has become your idol. I think about how there are some, and, and I'm not here to tell you if you do this, then this means you have an idol. I'm not here to say that. It's, this is completely gut check. But close your eyes and ask yourself, how could I live if I didn't have my nice big house? How could I live if I didn't have a nice 401k? How could I live if I didn't have the prospect of a vacation home? How could I live if I couldn't have my, my golf outings every week? How could I live if I didn't have the, the internet? How, how, how many people run themselves? Life is stressful. And this is what Jesus is saying in the latter half of the chapter. Life is hard. Every day is hard, but people add to it. How, how many people are just burning themselves out because they got to afford private school? They've got to afford that Disney vacation. They, they, they like living in the house so much that rather than contemplate moving, I'm willing to incur so much stress that I can't sleep, that I have ulcers. That, 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 the good life has become the dominant thing and it drives the decisions in such a way that it pushes out some options, forces some other options upon you. That is service. And did you know brothers and sisters, that when it says you cannot serve God and wealth, God and affluence, the word serve, latria, hey, if you like theological debates, especially debates with Catholics, you know what the word latria means. 
You know what latria means? Worship. The word for service is the word for worship, which is why in the Old Testament, consistently, biblically speaking, you've got to change the what you think about worship. And this is where Jesus is, is, is getting to the Pharisees. Oftentimes, too oftentimes, the pull to nominalism is strong. In every, in every society, I don't care if, if the religion is animism or if it's, or if it's high church Episcopalianism, the, the pull to nominalism to fit in with the culture is strong. It was popular a few, my, my wife and I were talking in the car, it was popular a few years ago for the stars of Hollywood to, to be quiet about certain things, so they kept quiet. It's popular now to speak out, so they're speaking out. The pull to fit in is strong. But service is the word that's used for worship, not, not cultic acts and practices. That's what we tend to think of as worship. The formal acts of gathering and standing and raising one's hands and sitting and praying and singing, that's worship. In Bible language, worship is the orientational servitude of one's life. This is throughout the scriptures. When Moses is at the burning bush, God tells him, you will bring the people out of Egypt, and when you do, you shall serve God on this mountain. And throughout Pharaoh and Moses' interchange, consistently, each time, what does Moses say? Let my people go that they might serve me. The second commandment, when God gives his law, you shall not worship these, these idols, these images. You shall, not wor- you shall not bow down or serve them. And from that point on, the worship of idols, the worship of God is consistently hundreds of times listed and described as service. So Joshua, at the end of his life, says this, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Service. It's not just Acts of piety done publicly. It's not just formal ritualistic acts done collectively in a service. The orientational, dispositional outlook and acting out of one's life is the kind of worship, the kind of service the Lord is looking for in those who are righteous. Indeed, 
when Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, he's reminding you that you have a master. You have a master. There is no free agency in the world. You are either dominated by the zeitgeist and its cultural God, or you are owned by the Lord who has bought you. And isn't that not what the Bible tells us? I mean, what, what does 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tell us? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Fast forward, Peter in 2 Peter 2, 1 warns us that there's gonna be false teachers that come in and they introduce destructive heresies and and. and most scandalous of all, it says, they will d- even deny their master who bought them. You, Christian, have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now, what this means then is you can't serve two masters. You've got to decide, much like Joshua challenges the people of Israel, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. The cruel tyrant that is mammon? Over you serve the true and living God who gives life and light. True righteousness calls for loyalty. Loyalty. It's devotion and faithfulness to a nation, an entity, or a person. When you hear the word faith, there is at the core of faith the connotation of loyalty, of allegiance. In in, in our English language, faith, we tend to think of it primarily as believing in something you can't see. And that's true, but but, but guiding through it is that strand of allegiance. That's why it's in our oaths, bearing true faith. And that's why we speak of someone who breaks their vows as faithless or unfaithful. Because faith means allegiance. So what this means is you're in first century Palestine. And you have all of the clamor of the gods of the age. Screaming. Enticing. Perhaps ridiculing dissenters. Because the pull and push to conformity is required. And yet you have the call of the living God. Who, Who will you believe? Who will you obey? And whom will you trust? True righteousness is based upon loyalty to the living God even when you see others appearing to flourish. So the great temptation for evangelical, that is Bible-believing churches this day, is to conform or, or to genuflect or to just, just burn a little pinch of incense to the God of, of this, of this gender-confused dystopian world we live in. Just, just acknowledge just, just a little and we'll say less bad things about you. That pull is strong. 
institutions are having to close doors and and and, and Do you want to be successful or do you want to perish? That's the way the world frames it. But the true and living God says, seek those treasures that are in heaven where where, where nothing can be taken from you. They're secure. Because where those treasures are, that's where your heart is set. So loyalty, that's what true righteousness is comes down to, and it's based upon trust. This whole latter half of the chapter is one beautiful, protracted argument by Jesus that you can trust the Lord to provide for your needs. But man, oh man, each of us, we struggle with it. I struggle with it. Why? Because I'm I'm anxious. Anxieties plague us. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous, the famous Danish philosopher, famously described or defined anxiety as unfocused fear. And if you know what I'm talking about, you, that's an apt description. It, it's, it's generalized. It, it's not pinpointed, targeted at a specific localized threat. Like, a bear just busts out of the woods and it's on the trail and it's baring its teeth at me. That, that's a localized threat. That's fear. But anxiety is the impending sense that something bad's about to happen. And I don't know what, I don't know where it's coming from. And it causes your adrenal system to function all the time and you just burn yourself out. Anxiety is terrible. And the fear about tomorrow looms over everybody. Where's the next meal coming from? In our day of affluence, that's not a tough question, but, but think back to, I mean, it wouldn't take much for us to be reduced to trying to dig holes for water. So in a world where there's not a plumbing system, where there's not a public utility system, just getting water to drink is a, is a task. And Jesus addresses the concern about the anxiety we feel by fundamentally just backing up and calling us to consider God's goodness. Look how consistently he cares for birds, for flowers, and guess what? You matter more than they. Jesus is not telling people, give up your jobs and quit and become lazy and just sit around. That's not what a bird does. Every day, that bird is out going and getting food. But the bird's not worried about tomorrow's food. The bird is worried about today's food. It just does its thing. Jesus wants you to come to the point where you ask yourself, do I trust God? Do I trust him to supply my needs? Do I trust him to be there? Do you? And my guess is that you're like me. And my guess is that like together, we are like the apostles who have to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
In all of us, there is the mixture of faith and fear. Even though the word of God so consistently calls us to cast out fear, we're sinners. Think back to the Beatitudes. The righteous ones are those precisely who know that they are spiritually poor. That they are humbled by their own sense of inadequacy. That they, that they hunger and thirst for a righteousness from God precisely because they know that they're not going to have it within themselves. And that's what Jesus calls us to here in verse 33. Don't, don't worry so much about all this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's that righteousness that surpasses again. Seek that righteousness. Let that be the treasure that you're seeking. And if you take care of that, everything else will fall in line behind it. I love how Jesus tells us that if we're weary and heavy laden, we should come to him. For he is kind and gentle of spirit. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus wants you to be free from the tyranny of the God of mammon. Trust the Lord to provide. And in your trust, be loyal in your devotion and service to God. And he will prove himself faithful. And he will fill up your every lack. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the kind of God who supplies our needs. And because you are so benevolent, you even oftentimes give us several of our wants. Father, grant that we would have hearts that trust and lives that are loyal. Grant that we would live our entire existence as before your face, that we would not betray you in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, but rather that we would exhibit loyalty, the same, the same loyalty we desire and expect and show towards our spouse. God, we ask that you would be merciful to us because we are sinners, we are frail, we are not perfect. So give us your righteousness the righteousness that Christ procured for us by perfectly keeping your commandments and by dying in our place. Grant that we would have faith in him and that we would seek to glorify him as a gift of thanks for all that he has done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is our hope?